Welcome to Into the Mothlight podcast. Before we get into this episode, I just wanted to thank our main sponsors at the Film and Video Poetry Society for their ongoing support. They are due to announce the details of the 2021 Film and Video Poetry Symposium early next month, and we'll certainly share that with you when the time comes. We've also just updated our Patreon page and now you can support the podcast for as little as $5 or £4 a month and you'll find the link to our Patreon page in the episode notes. This time on Into the Mothlight, we're talking to the Memphis-born, Brooklyn-based filmmaker Lynn Sachs. Since the 1980s, Lynn has created cinematic works that defy genre through the use of hybrid forms and collaboration, incorporating elements of essay film, collage, performance, documentary and poetry. Her films explore the intricate relationships between personal observations and broader historical experiences. With each project, she investigates the implicit connection between the body, the camera and the materiality of film itself. After a comprehensive career retrospective at the Sheffield Documentary Festival in 2020 and then the Museum of the Moving Image in New York this year, her latest feature, Film About a Father Who, is being screened on the Criterion Channel along with seven other short films. Over a period of 35 years, between 1984 and 2019, Lynn Sachs shot 8 and 16mm film, videotape and digital images of her father, Ira Sachs Sr., a born vivant and pioneering businessman from Park City, Utah. Film about a father is her attempt to understand the web that connects a child to her parents and a sister to her siblings. To start our conversation, I asked Lynn that after 35 years of filming, why now to make and release this work? Into the Moth Light. So sometimes I make films that are generated by an idea or a curiosity. You said to me that you feel that part of your very being is curiosity and it carries you through, and I feel the same way. Um, And in fact, That's what I think distinguishes this approach to filmmaking is the notion that we are constantly experimenting with the medium. We're trying out new things. We're we're taking beliefs that we have and challenging them. And so uh, sometimes I make films that that are intended to, you know, answer something that has been concerning me or that I'm trying to grapple with. But um, in this case, I kind of thought that I could understand my father better and my relationship to my father through the camera. That in a sense, the camera would become a catalyst for deeper conversations or that we would feel that we were collaborating on something and so that we would uh you know go off to a a place where he was watching a tree 
be felled or he, or he would, you know, um, perhaps, um, hang out in a, a groovy school bus in the middle that like he actually did that. He had like a kind of a house made out of a school bus and that we'd go talk about that, not just visit it in a way the camera became, um, a, an instigator or like a third presence that said, talk about things embrace you know, embrace the moment in a deeper way. So I decided to do that in the early nineties and I thought it would just take me a couple of years. And I really thought it was a way for me to, at that point, kind of like celebrate my iconoclastic father. Uh, but then things started to tumble in various directions, which you saw in the film, that that made me, in a way, shy away or run away from the project. And so I kept filming, but then I didn't know what to do with it. And part of it was that I would... I would record on tape or I'd record on 16 millimeter and then I would put it away because I actually didn't want to remember it. I wanted to, or be reminded of it, but I wanted to keep it. And so, uh, it, it was always beckoning me to, to face it, but mostly what I did for three decades was put it on a shelf or put it under the bed or put it in a closet but I knew it was there and I moved from various places at that point. I lived in California when I started. Then I came to New York. Then I went to Florida. Then I went to Baltimore. And so it kind of was this constant reminder. And it was sort of saying, deal with me, deal with me, deal with me. And then finally, you know, in 2020, I finished it. The, the idea of, um, I think I heard a quote from you recently that said, um, if I saw it with a camera, it, it was real, but in, in a way, is is a camera a sort of um, defense or, or or filter to keep you one step removed, perhaps when you are filming your father? Because I know not all of the conversations were easy conversations with him and the rest of the family. I I can tell you're an artist and a person whose tool is a camera because we use the camera in multiple ways. We use the camera to go deeper and to give ourselves permission or license to do just that. But sometimes we also use the camera to distance ourselves, to be witness, to be observer, but to be sort of to extricate ourselves because we think, oh, we don't have to talk because we're, we're just being present with a moment. And, you know, we want to kind of disappear behind this, this object, which is the camera. Um, So it, it actually frees you to be both involved or it frees you to be uninvolved, but then in your head, as you're holding the camera, you're, you're processing it maybe in a more complex way than, than we might be if we were just chatting and kind of, or participating in a verbal way, but not as cerebral a way. I think the camera makes us be present in moments that is, that are, emotional and intellectual. And, you know, then there's the artistic side. And that's actually a strange, a strange shift, because you do things like uh, you, you shoot because the light is beautiful. So you think, whoa, I, you know, I am here because I'm drawn to things that are aesthetic. And so 
that creates a, a different register for like assessing the situation, but it also gives you a little distance and it gives you pleasure. And I think that was one of those, that's a key thing in making a film like this about your life is where do you find pleasure? Where do you find solace? And maybe, maybe your question is leading me to think that like that the camera gave me a kind of joy that was all mine, which had to do with light, with that, which had to do with listening, which, you know, had to do with framing. And that's very like intimate to my being. Let me ask you about the, the editing process as well. So if we think about the film that you made um, with and for Barbara Hammer, which we'll talk about later on. So obviously you can, you're, you're, you're slightly removed from that. And with the images and text that you were given, you, you made the work. But when the, when the, when the story is directly ab- about you, how do you, how can you be subjective? How do you work out what stays in and, and what, what doesn't make the, the final edit, for example? You know, that question, which has to do with the selectivity of the material, which again goes back to, to content and it goes back to form. It's that, that constant dialogue that we have as, as artists is, you know, I'm drawn to something because it evokes uh, a, a kind of wrought emotion or I'm drawn to something because I think it's beautiful and it's graphically compelling. And so the thing is that I shot this film over 30 years and I shot it in various media. So I, I started off in, believe it or not, VHS video. That was one of the, the very, very first material I shot. Actually, that I shot would have been in the 80s, but I didn't know I was making a film about my father, but it is something I shot with my father when we went on a trip to Bali, which I mentioned in the film. And then I shot 16 millimeter throughout the whole process. It's the, it's the, like, I would say it's the only constant of the whole film other than myself and my bot, you know, than the people. The 16 millimeter was shot with the same camera I bought in 1987 and I was still shooting in 2019 with that camera that I bought for $400. Uh, sick wind up camera, no batteries, doesn't have sound with it, but I love that camera. It's in the closet right over there. Uh, so, so I was able to shoot with a kind of, enthusiasm with a vengeance but the editing process was deeply intimidating to me because it meant I had to look at the work I had to confront stories that were part of my life and my family and some of it I felt a lot of shame and some of it I felt angry and then other parts elicited forgiveness so uh, around 2017 I started working with a woman named Rebecca Shappas, who had been a student of mine a few years before. And she is a really big enthusiast for experimental film. She had taken a f- class I took on like avant-garde and experimental film. I knew she liked it. And I was looking for someone to work with me on a multiple things, like a few hours a week. So she started to work with me. And she's not a film editor. She's, a, she's an artist who knows how to work uh, programs like Premiere. And I know how to use Premiere, but I needed to find a a distance. And she's actually uh, 26 years old now. 
And so she could participate in the viewing of the films, but not judge it in the way that I was constantly judging. And we would talk about it. And actually the fact that she, she didn't judge me or my dad or anybody, she had this sort of um, compassion because she knows that every family is, is faced with a kind of fraught situation. And they're, they're, I call it the imprint certain parent, you know, a parent imprints you in a, in a, a way that you don't know what to do with it. And other, you know, and other people or sisters or brothers or, you know, they imprint in a very easy way. And, and so she listened to all that. And so we watched all of the material, which was hours and hours, and hours, not, I mean, I don't overshoot and we, we, I would actually transcribe it and she would be at the keyboard and we would talk about it. And we actually even created an Excel sheet, like a kind of database with Word, because we had to move through a lot of material and we were interested in the form. And, and then we started to, to do something, I think, which is important. We celebrated the shift in, in technology rather than my feeling frustrated with how things looked that had been shot, you know, uh, in high eight, which isn't like a very beautiful texture. We started to say that's emblematic of a moment, a period of time. So, I'm always interested in hearing from other filmmakers about when um, they consider a work t- to be finished, and and I suppose it, it's doubly complicated with you because obviously you want to feel that the work is as good as it can be, but once it's out there, and because of the personal nature of the the film. Were you conscious of the fact that you were just about to kind of open a, a you know Pandora's box of all this kind of personal stuff, and also that it's something that you've been really close to? I think the word the using the word finished is really key. So in a in a more conventional documentary or narrative film, there's an idea that you come to a resolution that you know how the audience will li- leave the 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 theater or the, the screen, and you want them to leave with a specific frame of mind. But uh, with most of my work, I feel, let's say, happiest if I finish the film and it leaves people thinking about their own lives, that they don't have an absolutely complete picture, in this case, of my father and our family but that the fragmented nature of it is also an opportunity. It leaves fissures in which you can enter and think about your relationships or think about how you might put together whatever you have, the slivers of, you know, some people have far less than what I had because they didn't commit most of their adult life to making a film about a parent of theirs. For example, uh, People think that I have hours and hours of footage from the 60s because I was born in 1961, and we do see some material from the 1965 when my brother was born. You see this baby, and then if I'm doing like having a conversation, for example, with someone, I would say, "Well, actually, my parents only shot 12 minutes of film my entire childhood. Super eight. They probably just sort of." pulled it out a couple of times. And I have uh, 
used every single frame in a film of mine called The House of Science, another film called The Small Ones. You know, they have little pieces of that 12 minutes because I know how to shape it. We, I used to use an optical printer. Now I might use some other technique. But um, all of that leads me to some kind of work that, that I hope creates a resonance. And that's what I was looking for in this film. Um, plus, you know, my dad's getting older, I'm getting old. So there, there came a point where I'd had enough realizations about, in this case, secret siblings, uh, that I thought, I feel like I need to go on to the next part of my life. And, uh, and I'd, I'd spend a lot of time with my dad, more time than the film pushed me to spend more time with him, to have him come live with me for several weeks and all of that. So those were gifts that the process gave me. The films that you make or the, the documentary work um, in my mind, certainly falls within the category of experimental film. So how do you walk that line between mainstream documentary making and experimental filmmaking and, and, and still get your message across in a way that people can understand? I think I would answer the question about what does experimental documentary mean um, in two ways. The first is that I don't think I would know how to make a conventional documentary. Uh, Years ago, I was making a film about uh, civil disobedience and um, like a group of Catholic anti-war activists. Um, And I was traveling up to Boston to do an interview and someone I knew who worked at National Geographic said, how are you going to shoot that all by yourself? Because if you are working with Uh, a subject, then they need to look sort of off camera. And if it's just you, they're going to look straight at you. And I said, but I like that intensity. I like that we're in dialogue and that we're looking at each other. And that seemed like such a small, you know, deviation from the norm, but that kind of intimacy between the lens and between a person in front of the lens was always fine with me. And um, that's like just scratching the surface, right? Uh, I made that film ultimately, uh, it, it showed on the Sundance channel. And the, to me, I mean, that was like, whoa, I'm, I'm showing with the other tr- more traditional documentaries, but then reviewers would call it an anti-documentary. <laughs> um, and the thing is that in my work, I try to look at the, they call it the subject and the subject beckons the form. So the form is not a template. The form is not uh, a given. Uh, one time I was on uh, a panel on documentary and the, the, the facilitator started off the conversation by saying, okay, we can all assume that a good documentary begins with a character. And I said, well, I disagree completely. And I, I thought he wanted to throw me out the room because I don't go into a situation and think, who's the most charismatic here? You're going to be my person here. You're going to be my star. But I do think that a lot of more conventional documentary filmmakers follow that conceit of looking for a character and even calling the person a character is looking to narrative film. It's looking to a structure that's more, I would say, 
formulaic in the sense that it delivers a kind of catharsis and a sense of, of connection. And I'm not always trying to find an audience that will then identify with my characters in the way that good fiction often does. And I love fiction and I love fiction film, but that's not really my model. Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light Podcast. One of the things that you said there was about that that eye contact, and I watched Maya at twenty four. I've studied that film, and it also resonates with something else that you said about people are sick of the perfect image. So to me, there is a perfect image of of, of a moment of time and you and your daughter, but it, it comes alive because of that eye contact, because she's obviously looking at you through the camera. Uh, at, at very key moments at time when she's six, 16 and, and 24. Does that resonate with you? Well, actually, it is all about eye contact. That's yeah. it. I, I'm, I'm so impressed that you asked that question. It shows you really know my films well. <laughs> it's a funny place to start. But if I'm on an airplane or a bus and I start a conversation with someone, and which does happen less and less now that we're all wearing masks, and you know, and we say, well, what do you do? And then I say, well, I'm a filmmaker, and that doesn't carry the prestige that saying, oh, I'm a director, I'm a film director. But I don't identify with being a film director. I identify with being a maker. I like that hands-on aspect. But in this film, uh, Maya at 24, direction is key because this is a film made by a mom with her daughter, right? And so I said to my daughter at age six, 16 and 24, I want you to run a circles around me and I want you to try to look at my eyes. Now at six years old, she thinks it's kind of silly and she's a little playful. And then at 16, she's very self-conscious. And so she doesn't like to be watched even by mom's camera. And then at 24, She's agreeable, maybe you might even say compliant, but doesn't have time to do it really. You know, has other things and like, you know, has to go to school or has to, you know, get back to her job or whatever it is. Life is full and it's her life. So at different points, as we are looking at each other, we are witnessing different things and I have different ways of let's say, positioning myself with authority because you have two levels of authority. You have the authority of being the mother, the parent, but you also have the authority that comes with directing a movie and she's my uh, actress or my star or my subject. And so she agreed to be in my film. And that's a very strange aspect of filmmaking, that there are these explicit agreements, which include contracts but then there are these other agreements which are more typical in a more in a more experimental context or playful or or kind of arts context which is i am going to collaborate with you and i think that's by the time she's 24 i think that's what's happening these are two adult women 
you know, and they are making something together and there's a kind of collaborative spirit. So that changes. Um, I also want to bring it something to the, to our conversation around Maya at 24, which might be of interest to you. So she was 24 when I shot that, but also it, um, this film existed in three other contexts at different points. So I made a film called Photograph of Wind, which is an expression that I heard Robert Frank, the photographer, use. And her name is Maya, so it's it means illusion. And, and we're always interested in filmmaking in thinking about what can we see. So wind, we can't see, but we can see the impact of wind. And then when she was 16, I made a film called Same Stream Twice because I was interested in the, call it ontological aspects of film that you can return to the past, that you can revisit a moment in time. And then the third version, so when, she, when you see her at six, 16 and 24, uh, Maya at 24 is also 24 frames per second. So uh, she she's moving at, at the speed that her body allows her to move, but we're watching her move within these frames, still series of 12 or 24 still frames that create an illusion of movement. So they're all, all three versions of this film are also about the, the form as well. I do love that idea about um, the fact that you've had the, the same 16 millimeter film camera for all this time. And people have really kind of deep relationships with their, their camera. And I, I think um, Nathaniel Dorsky, who we interviewed a couple of podcasts back, and I know that's somebody that, that you've met, he, he's got a really strong connection to his camera, but it, it feels like you have the same, especially when it comes out the box to, to shoot your daughter when she's 24. You will be reflecting back and shooting her when she was 16 and she was six as well. Thank you for asking that because it, I almost forgot to think about the fact that I was able to shoot her at all three ages with the same camera. And, you know, in our lives, we think, is our skin the same? Is our being the same? How have we changed? How have we been affected by um, the shift in history or culture and politics? I'm very um, inspired, let's say, by a Portuguese author named Fernando Pessoa. And he wrote a book called The Book of Disquiet. And there's a line in it that I love which um, says everything that surrounds us becomes part of us. And so as I watch Maya at these three ages, I try to think about, well, how has the environment in which she lived entered her, her, entered me? But then there's one thing that hasn't been really that affected by the environment, and that's this camera. Uh, and, and I... I actually know one day that the camera will not be in my grasp and I'll, I'll have to find another one. But I do feel, I guess I'd say lucky that I've been able to pull that camera. I, I, this is a podcast, so I don't need to pull the camera out. You can imagine. Should I get it now just while we're talking about it? Yeah, if you like. It's yeah, right. It's like for, one foot. You know, it's just go right. for it. Yeah. It. <laughs> Ta-da. It's a okay. beauty. If we take a picture, I should put a lens on. 
because I only shoot with prime lenses. Mm-hmm. So uh, prime min- lens meaning fixed focal length. So I shoot with a 13 millimeter or 75 millimeter or 52 millimeter lens. I have a uh, zoom lens, but it's not that good. So uh, <laughs> this is the body of the camera and it's a Bolex. <laughs> Is a you probably would have guessed that it would be a 16 millimeter Bolex. Mm-hmm. So your love of filmmaking developed in the late 1980s in San Francisco. What brought you to experimental film and, and what was the scene back then? Who were you hanging out with? San Francisco was such a pivotal experience. I went to San Francisco my, because my sister, Dana, lived there and also because I was going to start graduate school. I ended up going to two different graduate programs. So I started at San Francisco State University, which is a public university, which they has a cinema, cinema program that really acknowledges film theory in a fantastic way. So I worked with Trenti Minha there. Uh, she's a Vietnamese American um, filmmaker, poet, and theoretical thinker. And I actually was her assistant for several years. And her, she made a, a very well-known film from the 1980s called Reassemblage. And uh, I worked on a, her film, Surname Viet, Given Name Nam, and a, a other works. Um, so she had a very big influence on me in terms of thinking about the ways we photograph people who are different from ourselves and how we acknowledge who we are in relationship to who we're looking at through our lens. I also actually learned cinematography from Babette Mangold, who had been a cinematographer and she's also a filmmaker for Chantelle Ackerman. And she happened to come to San Francisco State for one semester. So I was taking a cinematography class from her and she came, she was looking at a film that I was working on called um, Still Life with Woman and Four Objects, which you might have seen. And so this was in the mid 1980s. She said to me something about Walter Benjamin. And I had never heard of Walter Benjamin at the time. And she was kind of offended. Or, you know, kind of astounded. And I was just getting involved in filmmaking. So, of course, then I had to read read Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. And then I read The Task of the Translator and other essays by Benjamin. And, of course, like so many other filmmakers, um, I was transformed or transfixed, transformed, very, very moved by and and awakened by his writing. So that that is like, to me, the... the it, the essence of that experience of being in a university where they they were actually teaching people who didn't have a, a real technical background, which was my situation. I was came from, I came from a degree in history, an academic degree in history, and also uh, a lot like many years, but I was only like twenty five years old. But of being of being really committed to art making and writing poetry but I didn't know how to make films. So they they were willing to teach people how to make films, but also ideas. But at the same time, uh, I decided that I wanted to um, teach and I needed to get another degree, which is a 
a terminal degree called the Ma a Master of Fine Arts. So I started to go to the San Francisco Art Institute simultaneously. Like they let me cr share classes and it worked out well. So there I studied with the Swedish American filmmaker Gunvor Nelson, uh, whose work you might know. And I, I made a, a film with Gunvor and Barbara and Carol Eichnemann many, many, many years later. Uh, I worked with Ernie Gear, who's known as a structuralist filmmaker, George Kuchar, who's just like a wonderful and irreverent, very autonomous filmmaker. Um, and so those people had a big influence on me as well. But then outside of the school environment, I would say that my compatriot, big brother, dear, dear friend, Craig Baldwin, who's a filmmaker of found, mostly found footage works, but very, 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 very political, very so like aware of social dynamics. His presence in my life, his curating at a place called Other Cinema, which you might be familiar with, um, was extremely important to me. And I uh, would go to his venue every Saturday night for years. So those were all really important people. Oh, and Barbara Hammer was there and uh, I took a workshop from her and then she actually took a workshop from me and we became dear friends and both ended up moving to New York. So it was a scene and it was all a scene of people wanting to make be filmmakers, not directors. So if you're in San Francisco, you always are aware that you're different from Los Angeles. You're not Hollywood and you're okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> and because the podcast is called Into the Moth Light, is a reference to Stan Brackage, um, at what point did you start to become aware of him and his work? And, and did you cross paths at all at any point? Oh, I can say so. I, I will say many things. I will try not to talk too long about Stan Brackage. Um, so, I, one of the other places that I was introduced to experimental film was the San Francisco Cinematheque, and I also went there every Thursday. So, you know, I would go there on Thursdays. It was like my religion, um, and I would go to other cinema on Saturdays, and uh, so. Stan Brackage was always coming through with new films then. And also once I moved to New York, Stan would come to New York and he always premiered his films at the Millennium Film Workshop. And so he, he could have premiered his films at the New York Film Festival, but he always premiered them at, the, at Millennium. And so he would be there and he would hold for, court or for, hold forth and he would show a new film and then he would sit and talk and we people would just eat it up and it was very special because he he did it in this much more modest way um not flashy uh and so i i should also say that he once a year would curate a program at the anthology film archives so one year he showed my film the house of science a museum of false facts and he also showed my husband's film winter wheat. And uh, actually, he left us a, a voicemail for Mark, my husband, Mark Street. I met Mark in San Francisco. So that was also really important because we went to a lot of the same venues. And uh, Stan left like a, 
probably seven or eight minute voicemail on our answering machine. And I saved that and about Mark's film. And then I'll say something else about Stan, which was he had this kind of like a salon. It was called first person cinema in Boulder. He uh, would show films, but also invite artists to come out there. And so Mark and I were invited to go with our young child, Maya, who was still crawling. This was at the end of 1995, probably. And so uh, we were out in Boulder and we, we showed our work. And then the next day he had his salon and he was showing some silent Joseph Cornell films from his collection. And it was very exciting. And he had just given some books to Maya at age, you know, 10 months <laughs> and signed them. And so Maya started to make little giggly sounds and cry, cry a little bit in the theater. So I started to rush out. I thought, I need to rush out. We're watching these silent films by Joseph Cornell. It needs to be hallowed. It needs to be respectful. And actually, Stan loved it. And he encouraged Maya to crawl across the stage. And you have this silhouette in my memory of Maya's little body crawling in front of a Joseph Cornell film, maybe. And, uh, and, and Stan liked that mix of like, you know, of course he loved children, but the film itself didn't need to exist in this hermetic space. It could be affected by, by something very present and alive and, and uncontrollable like a baby. And so that was really endearing. So uh, one other thing Stan said to me, I remember from, from a conversation that we had, was that he watched everything. He was very Catholic with a little C about his viewing. So he, he actually, I believe, really loved the feature film, The Thin Red Line. That was a film about war and about, it had this, uh, it's um, Terrence Malick's film. Uh, and, and it has this voiceover by, a so, it's supposed to be a soldier and, and speaking in this very um, fragile, but but aware and present and pained way about war. And it wouldn't be a film that you would expect Stan Brackage to love, but it was one of his favorites. And so I turned to that film when I was making some of my film works um, because I wanted to understand, for example, how voiceovers could be used in this raw way, not this sort of polished way. And, and that, I mean, that wouldn't, he never used voiceover and he never would have constructed a film that way, but he understood why it was such a perfect film for, a, to guide you through something that, that intimate and personal. So I like, I appreciated that about those, all of those things about Stan. We've talked a little bit about how you learned about film and the people that you learned from. I'm interested in how you, as an established filmmaker, cascade this information down. And one of the workshops that I was looking at and it's something I battle with quite a lot, was intersections between the still moving images and the written 
and, and spoken word. So how do you start to get your students to, to understand those intersections and avoid the obvious and, and the cliches mm-hmm. and, and really kind of think deeply about the, the work and how an image will work with or work against the text that they're working with? I, I want to say I love the word that you used, cascade. Like I never thought about teaching that way, but a cascade is also something that you can't quite control. So you you let it pour out and then it keeps pouring even if you're you're not um, prepared to let to for to reveal that much. But I, I, I think that's like kind of the perfect word for the joy of teaching. And teaching has a parallel to, to art making in that you're showing something about your process and you're, you're sharing, you're actually sharing something you care a great deal about. So in the, the context of teaching, most recently, I've been very interested in that intersection between image and text. And so going back to more conventional um, filmmaking practices, I would say that people look at text and they call it dialogue. You know, it, they even, when there's, when people edit the soundtracks, they talk about the effects track and they talk about the music track and then words are dialogue and they're about communicating and moving a narrative forward. But I have a very different relationship to words and text. I like words to be on screen and to take a graphic presence. I occasionally when the film calls for that, I like exploring ways of cutting sound and work uh, in this in a similar way to the way that poetry breaks has line breaks so it's not that you just cut on the period and the exclamation mark but that you you cut on a bit like um, Robert Altman might cut sound where sound layers on top of itself and you 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 imbibe it you don't just understand it it enters your you in a more visceral physical way seemingly physical way. So those are ways that, that I try to convey that to students of mine. And I, lately, I, I've been teaching a lot of online workshops. Who would have thought of it? But uh, I, the first workshop I did around film and poetry was actually with Jesse at the Film and Video Symposium. Uh, and he, it, we did it in person. I've been teaching workshops actually at poetry centers. So I, I just finished last week a two-week workshop on uh, called Frames and Stanzas. And I taught it at the, it's called the Flowchart Foundation, which is John Ash, the poet John Ashbery's um, center. He's not alive anymore, but he, it was created as an homage to John Ashbery. And so I taught mostly poets, a few filmmakers. So it's been interesting because a lot of people in poetry want to start playing with image. And I think there's a strong resistance to the image illustrating the poem and, and that, which was always how, how film was used. It was used, you know, let's look at Emily Dickinson and show her environment in Amherst, Massachusetts and that kind of thing. And instead it's, it's more it's more graphic, more rhythmic, more of a intersection of of 
disparate things that come together to create something new rather than just a support for the poetry. Uh, so I've been working with some really, really incredible poets. Um, and I feel lucky about that. So the Criterion Channel is presenting the exclusive streaming premiere of Film About a Father Who um, this month, along with some of your other work. And, and obviously, you've just had a career retrospective at the Museum of the Moving Image in New York. Do those things still bring you joy as, as, as an artist as established as you are? Oh, my gosh. To, to have a retrospective is intimidating and exciting. It doesn't happen very much. Um, you know, I mean, this year has been kind of special in that way. Uh, the Sheffield Film Festival did a partial retrospective. They showed, that was in 2020, but they, they showed probably five or six of my films. So it's been interesting to look at them all together. But, you know, it's not that my work shows all over the place and that thousands and thousands of people watch it. I mean, experimental film is, is the nature of it is, is sort of micro cinema all the way. So uh, I rarely show my films to large groups of people. And the Criterion channel is very exciting to me. It's a kind of like a, an opening. It's, it's kind of scary. It's definitely scary. You know, I'm used to traveling with my films. And of course, because of the pandemic, I could do that. But, you know, if I have a, a screening somewhere and I can get there, then I like to be there. So I, I'm used to kind of small audiences where we sit around and then we go to a bar afterwards, that kind of thing. And um, so the fact that I won't see the audience such as it is for the Criterion channel is... Um, exciting and also kind of definitely intimidating. Maybe we need to see more retrospectives of your of your work in, 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 in the UK. And actually, one of the questions that Sarah Pucell put to me for, for you was about that relationship between experimental film exhibition and, and production in between America and, and, and the UK. And the feeling is it's it's harder for us to see films from American filmmakers in the UK. And I'm not entirely sure why that is. It's interesting when we talk about experimental film from the UK here, uh, people often look at the, you might call them structuralist filmmakers from the seventies from England. And then there's a tendency to look at it in a more of a historical way. And I'm wondering why, why there isn't more of an exchange. There's almost more of an exchange between Germany and the U.S., or even maybe between Spain and the U.S., than, uh, and that you would think there's going to be a language barrier there. I will say that in the U.K., we, there's a tr tradition of the, the, co the cooperative. So you, have, you had London Filmmakers Co-op, and now you have Lux, I believe, and we have the Filmmakers Cooperative and we have Canyon Cinema. And so I, I guess I would say the emphasis on those works has been on 16 millimeter until just a few years ago. So 16 millimeter travels as an object. And now with this embrace of the virtual, both Canyon Cinema 
and uh, the Filmmakers Cooperative have exhibitions that are virtual. So I think that you and I can say the possibility of more exchange is much more, is more available. The idea of this cross-Atlantic um, correspondence, um, my husband, Mark Street, is is um, going to be on, he teaches at Fordham University here, and he's going to be on sabbatical next year. So we're going to be spending more uh, together. We decided to come to Europe for a few months. So, but his main intention is to shoot in Scotland. Look, look me up. Um, definitely look me I up. I will. I'll be in yeah. contact with you yeah. about that. So one last question for you, Lynn. Um, mm-hmm. what's, what's occupying your mind now in, in terms of uh, your next project do you have anything in production or anything that you're considering? Yeah, uh, I'm actually working on a film which I call Every Contact Leaves a Trace. And it's, that's an expression or a way of thinking that comes out of the study of forensics, this notion of I touch you and you touch me and we leave DNA or we leave a mark. But I'm interested in a more... Um, comprehensive way. I'm interested in the in how we have a, a tactile impact on one another. And specifically, I'm looking at these hundred a, a box I have in the other room of hundreds and hundreds of calling cards or business cards that people have given me over many years. And I'm interested in the way those people's lives have kind of passed through mine and how each card becomes a mnemonic device for an, a human being. It becomes a distillation for who that person was. You know, it could be someone who worked in a hardware store that I may, met when I was shopping for a garden hose, or it could be a doctor, or it could be like a an activist filmmaker from China. And I'm wondering if that person's still able to be an activist, you know. So I'm interested in the way we cut, like there's the expression where we are judged by the company we keep, how we become a composite of the company we keep. And so I've actually been studying, looking at those cards in various ways. Forensically, I I went to a school for criminology and look and tried to find out if there were fingerprints on some of the cards, like how the physics, like that they become material elements of people that have come through my life. But I'm also interested in how the paper is made. So I was filming paper being made in a handmade paper studio, Um, like how the paper is, you know, this pulp and that, that. But then I'm interested in them as these micro narratives. So that's something I'm working on right now. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Uh, Yeah, that sounds great. Um, Lynn, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, it's been a pleasure you, to, to spend some time with you and, and let, let's talk again soon. All right. Bye-bye. Into the Moth podcast is sponsored by the Film and Video Poetry Society. Into the Moth podcast. Into the Moth Thank you.